section twenty six of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lily craik chapter four part two the only one of dr knott's arguments which has much or indeed any apparent force is that which he draws from the manner in which all our early poetry that of chaucer included is stated to be written in the ancient manuscripts in all those manuscripts he says the caesura in the middle and the pause at the end of the line are pointed out with a precision that leaves no room for conjecture the points or marks made use of have no reference whatever to punctuation they never occur but at the place of caesura in the middle of the line or at the pause at the end of it and are often made with red paint the better to catch the eye when the mark of caesura is omitted an interval is generally left in the middle of the line between the two hemistitches the second hemistitch frequently begins with a capital though the introduction of a capital there instead of assisting often confuses the sense dissertation page one hundred and fifty two an impartial consideration of the subject he afterwards observes and a reference to good manuscripts must i think lead us to conclude that chaucer had not a metrical system of numbers in contemplation but that on the contrary he designed his verses to be read like those of all his contemporaries with a caesura and with rhythmical cadence edem page one hundred and fifty nine again speaking particularly of the manuscripts of chaucer's poems he says in these manuscripts either the caesura or the pause at the end of the line and sometimes both the pause and the caesura are almost always noted and that in so careful a manner as makes it questionable whether there be any manuscript of good date and authority in which one or both of them is not noted either by a point or a virgule though the virgule or point may in some instances have been obliterated why this particularity which must have been designed to answer some practical purpose should not have been noticed by the several editors of chaucer's works i am at a loss to say the omission is the more remarkable as it could not have escaped observation that all the manuscripts agree in fixing the caesura in every line with hardly any variation at the same place this is another evident mark of design amounting to little less than proof that chaucer not only meant his verses to be rhythmical but did all he could to settle what their rhythm should be edem page one hundred and sixty three finally he remarks on the subject of the caesura its use and the object proposed by it is confirmed by the appearance of the early printed editions of chaucer's works in the editions subsequent to fifteen thirty two the caesura is almost entirely disused if it was retained it seems to have been retained by accident the reason is obvious our english versification had then become metrical the caesura was therefore no longer wanted for general purposes it was consequently omitted though strictly speaking in some works it ought to have been retained but in the editions previous to fifteen thirty two the case was different 
the rhythmical cadence was then still in use and therefore the division of the hemistitch was still to be continued edam page one hundred and sixty nine surrey's poems were first printed in fifteen fifty seven but there were editions of chaucer in fifteen forty two fifteen forty six and fifteen fifty five which must be understood according to this statement to be all without the caesura would it not appear then that metrical verse upon dr knott's own showing had been introduced from fifteen to twenty-five years before surrey's poems were given to the world it is true they were written some years before for surrey was put to death in january fifteen forty seven but they can hardly have been supposed to have been already so widely diffused in manuscript as to have revolutionized the national versification when the chaucer of fifteen forty two the first edition without the caesura was published surrey according to the common account was not more than twenty-three or twenty-four years old even dr knott does not pretend that he was more than twenty-six what dr knott calls the pause at the end of the line seems to have nothing to do with the question he raises in regard to the nature of chaucer's versification of course it is admitted upon either and must be admitted upon any system that a line is such an integral section as may be properly separated by a point or other divisional mark if it be thought necessary as poetry is now written nothing of the kind is required the limits of the line or verse cannot be more distinctly indicated than they are by each being kept standing by itself and it is not easy to see what practical purpose could be contemplated by retaining the points at the end of the line after this method was introduced probably it was merely a retention from habit of a usage to which transcribers and readers had become accustomed and which was no doubt very serviceable while verse was written continuously like prose as it generally or always was in the earliest era of our language we may therefore put aside altogether so much of the above statement as refers to this final point or pause let us see then how the fact stands as to the other and only important mark that of the caesure as dr knott calls it in the middle of each verse he sets out by telling us that both the caesure in the middle and the pause at the end of the line are always pointed out with perfect precision but this broad assertion is very far from being adhered to when he comes to specify particulars the next form in which we have the statement is that when the mark of caesure is omitted an interval is generally left in the middle of the line then in still more qualified phrase we are informed that in the manuscripts of chaucer's poetry either the caesure or the pause at the end of the line and sometimes both are almost always noted he persists however in maintaining the careful manner in which this notation of the pause or pauses has been attended to in all good manuscripts although he admits that the virgule or point may in some instances have been obliterated and he affirms as we have seen though not very consistently with his previous admission of its being only in some manuscripts that the caesure is noted at all that all the manuscripts of chaucer agree in fixing the caesure in every line with hardly any variation at the same place let us now turn to his examples one will suffice to show how far his statements are borne out even in their most limited form the first seven lines of the canterbury tales are professed to be given from three different manuscripts of one of these the lansdowne manuscript nine o seven 
the account given is that in this passage the caesura or middle pause is not marked at all either by point or virgule but that elsewhere we have the lines cut not uniformly into two portions by a single virgule but sometimes into two sometimes into three sometimes into four portions by a succession of such strokes this is a phenomenon of which dr knott's theory seems to take no account all he has to say in regard to it is that the frequent recurrence of the virgule may be suspected to be intended to mark some rules in recitation with which we now are unacquainted the two other manuscripts harleian manuscripts seventeen fifty eight and seventy three thirty three as here quoted differ as to the place of the middle pause in the very first line and in three of the remaining six lines where the one has only a point the other has both a point and a virgule in a fourth verse only a virgule and in a fifth a point followed by a capital letter but it is hard to say what dependence can be safely placed even upon this apparent amount of agreement it so happens that the same passage has been printed from the same two manuscripts by mr guest in his history of english rhythms two volumes octavo london eighteen thirty eight volume one page two hundred and fifteen and the variations between his transcripts and those of dr knott are not a little startling dr knott evidently did not intend to preserve the old spelling although for the object he had here in view that would have been almost necessary but some of the liberties he appears to have taken go far beyond the reformation of the antique verse in that particular in his extract from the manuscript seventeen fifty eight which extends to eight verses in the first line he might perhaps defend his change of wit into with and of swote for sweet into sutta in the third line vain instead of vena or vain is probably a typographical erratum in the fourth the substitution of whereto for virtue though not very intelligible and indeed the very reverse of what might have been expected is still not a very wide deviation but the printing of had for hath in the second line is an instance of unpardonable inattention and to transform the eighth line from into the ram his half course rana as it stands in mr guest's transcript into hath in the ram his half course iran is proceeding to so great a length as to destroy all reliance upon such a mode of pretending to exhibit the testimony of ancient manuscripts or upon any conclusions so supported but the discrepancies between the two transcripts of the other manuscript bear more upon the question of the middle pause or caesura for according to mr guest's exhibition of this text there is in three of the seven lines the first second and sixth actually no mark of any such pause at all mr guest states that in this manuscript the pause when inserted is often nothing more than a mere scratch of the pen and so far from regarding either manuscript as a good one or as carefully written in regard to the divisional point he describes the occasional omission or misplacing of the dot as perfectly in keeping with the general inaccuracy of both his extract extends to eighteen lines and in regard to eight of the ten not already examined we are enabled to compare the two harleian manuscripts with another then belonging to the marquis of stafford of which a transcript to that extent is given by dr knott
passing over other differences we find that in the harleian manuscript seventy three thirty three the middle pause is wanting altogether in the second fourth and eighth that it is also wanting in the third of the stafford manuscript and that in the fifth it is placed differently in all the three manuscripts it is also wanting in the ninth line in the harleian manuscript seventeen fifty eight it seems plain that of such confusion and uncertainty as this little or nothing can be made and that any attempt to exhibit in printing chaucer's poetry the caesura or middle pause in each verse as noted in the manuscripts would be impracticable even if it were ever so important but is this caesural mark in fact of any importance in determining the nature of chaucer's versification mr guest holds as well as dr knott that each line in chaucer consists properly of two parts which the sejural mark was designed to indicate still as it seems to me he observes after describing the irregularity with which this mark is introduced in the manuscripts we can only come to one conclusion in examining these manuscripts namely that each verse was looked upon as made up of two sections precisely in the same way as the alliterative couplet of the anglo-saxons yet mr guest finds no difficulty in reconciling with the principles of syllabical rhythm this fact of the division of each verse by the sejural mark which dr knott regards as demonstrative of the rhythm being not syllabical but only accentual nor is there in truth anything in the sejura to decide the matter either one way or the other the middle pause as found in the manuscripts of chaucer appears to be as consistent with the syllabical as with the merely accentual scanning of the verse if the right text be followed for example in printing the first eighteen lines of the canterbury tales with accentual marks to show in what manner the verse was as he apprehends recited dr knott gives the first line thus when that april with his showers sota marking the three syllables when with and shower as long the last syllable of april and the word sota with a grave accent and the syllables that is an s of surus as short the first syllable of april being left without any mark it is not very clear what all the parts of this apparatus of notation are intended to mean but certainly however the words so set down may be meant to be read or sung they are not reducible to the regular metre of our modern heroic verse it is by no means either certain or probable however that when is chaucer's word the reading adopted by terwitt is wana which he regards as a disyllable and he has as good a right to select that form which occurs in some of the manuscripts as dr knott has to select the monosyllabic form win or wan from other manuscripts for the purpose of his theory the next five lines are every one of them even as printed by dr knott of perfect metrical regularity the sejura is also where it should be upon either system the only thing that interferes with their being read like any modern english heroic verse is dr knott's own notation of their supposed temporal and essential character all that is wanting to make the seventh line a correct modern verse is to be read younger in two syllables with terwitt instead of young with not 
there being manuscript authority for both forms the eighth line dr not prince hath in the ram hath his course run we doubt whether there be any authority for this form of the verse but at any rate terwitt's form hath in the ram his halfa cursirana where halfa is a dissyllable is supported by the harleian manuscript seventy three thirty three in the ninth line not obtains his text by changing the dissyllabic smala of both the harleian manuscripts into the modern monosyllable small the next three lines are equally regular upon either system the thirteenth line will scan metrically even as given by not provided we reckon strange a dissyllable but we do not know where he has got his text it does not agree with either of the harleian manuscripts and does little with the stafford manuscript as exhibited by himself in another page the last five lines again are regular upon both systems upon the whole it does not appear that the sejural mark of the manuscripts can be regarded as indicating or proving at the most anything more than that by the rule of the verse the place where it fell should always be at the termination and never in the middle of a word a rule which is also generally though not always observed in our modern prosody as far as can be ascertained the two parts into which when it is employed it divides each of chaucer's lines are as much the hemistitches of what dr not calls a metrical as of what he calls a merely rhythmical verse we do not understand what notion of the harmony of english verse can have led dr not to quote the following line from the canterbury tales in her is high beauty withouten pride as one which unless read rhythmically as he calls it has no principle of harmony at all even if we read beauty with the accent on the last syllable it is in fact a perfectly correct heroic verse according to the strictest laws of our modern prosody yet he asserts that if chaucer had followed that prosody he would unquestionably have written the verse inner high beauty is withouten pride thus making it a perfect iambic decasyllabic line by the transposition of a single word let the reader who has any feeling of chaucer's direct natural manly diction or even of the most common proprieties of speech decide yet upon this single instance dr not lays it down that a large proportion of chaucer's verses cannot be read metrically without doing the utmost violence to our language all which verses are harmonious as verses of cadence if read with the sejura rhythmically and further that all those verses might easily by a slight transposition have been reduced to the pure iambic decasyllabic measure if chaucer had either known that mode of versification or intended to have adopted it such an assertion by the by would be a somewhat bold one even if a hundred instances were quoted instead of one and those really instances in point while insisting that chaucer's verses are constructed upon what he describes as the rhythmical principle which he has begun by defining as independent of the number of feet or syllables dr not strangely enough admits that the chief improvement which chaucer made in our versification was the introduction of the line of ten syllables dissertation page one hundred and fifty eight and he afterwards repeatedly calls his verses decasyllabic or as he more usually chooses to express himself decasyllables but he cannot possibly mean 
that chaucer's versification is upon his theory really syllabically any more than that it is accentually correct according to our modern notions in fact of the eighteen lines which he has printed from the commencement of the canterbury tales to show in what manner rhythmical decasyllabic verses were recited no fewer than seven are according to his own notation not decasyllabic at all they are verses of nine syllables sometimes with an unaccented syllable at the end which counts for nothing in prosody not of ten finally before dismissing dr knott and his theory we may remark that no attempt is made by him or it to meet the apparently conclusive proof of the now silent final e having been enunciable as a distinct syllable in chaucer's age derived from the occurrence of such rhymes as roma and to me tima and by me indeed he expressly states dissertation page one hundred and eighty three note that with the exception of a passage in Cleave, of which he shows that the received reading is most probably incorrect and which by the by would scarcely have been in point at any rate he had nowhere met with a single rhyme to justify the notion that the final e which we properly call the e mute was ever pronounced more recently however tyrwhitt's main principle for the scanning of chaucer's verse the occasional pronunciation of this now mute final e has been attacked or at least denounced on other grounds and by a higher authority the late mr richard price in his edition of wharton's history of english poetry four volumes octavo london eighteen twenty four assigns an origin to this termination which he considers to be altogether irreconcilable with terwitt's view of it the change of orthography from the anglo-saxon forms which has taken place in a numerous class of our english words mr price maintains has arisen solely from the abolition of the accentual marks which distinguish the long and short syllables as a substitute for the former he says the norman scribes or at least the disciples of the norman school of writing had recourse to the analogy which governed the french language and to avoid the confusion which would have sprung from observing the same form in writing a certain number of letters differently enounced and bearing a different meaning they elongated the word or attached as it were an accent instead of superscribing it from hence has emanated an extensive list of terms having final e's and duplicate consonants which were no more the representatives of additional syllables than the acute or grave accent in the greek language is a mark of metrical quantity and he adds in a note the converse of this can only be maintained under an assumption that the anglo-saxon words of one syllable multiplied their numbers after the conquest and in some succeeding century subsided into their primitive simplicity again he observes in another place the anglo-saxon ah was pronounced like the danish ah the swedish ah or our modern o in more for etc a strong intonation given to the words in which it occurred would strike a norman ear as indicating the same orthography that marked the long syllables of his native tongue and he would accordingly write them with an e final it is from this cause that we find har sar hat bat wa an ban stan etc written hor hora sor hota hot boat boat 
woe one bone stone some of which have been retained the same principle of elongation was extended to all the anglo-saxon vowels that were accentuated such as wreck reek reek lif life gada goad good skur sure shower and hence the majority of those e's mute upon which mr turwood has expended so much unfounded speculation and the complete development of these doctrines is promised in a supplementary volume which was announced under the title of illustrations of wharton's history of english poetry containing among other things an examination of mr turwitt's essay on the language and versification of chaucer but which has never appeared upon this view of the matter let us hear a living writer who must be regarded as the highest authority on the earlier forms of the language the most frequent vowel endings of anglo-saxon substantives says mr guest history of english rhythms one twenty six were a e u all the three were in the fourteenth century represented by the e final and afterwards in explaining the origin of our present mode of indicating the long quantity of a vowel preceding a single consonant by the annexation of an e he observes edem page one o eight in the anglo-saxon there was a great number of words which had as it were two forms one ending in a consonant the other in a vowel in the time of chaucer all the different vowel endings were represented by the e final and so great is the number of words which this writer uses sometimes as monosyllables and sometimes as disyllables with the addition of the e that he has been accused of adding to the number of his syllables whenever it suited the convenience of his rhythm in his works we find heart and harta bed and beda earth and eartha etc in the anglo-saxon we find corresponding duplicates the additional syllable giving to the noun in almost every case a new declension and in most a new gender in some few cases the final e had become mute even before the time of chaucer and was wholly lost in the period which elapsed between his death and the accession of the tudors still however it has its ground in our manuscripts and your our rose arose etc though pronounced as monosyllables were still written according to the old spelling hence it came gradually to be considered as a rule that when a syllable ended in a single consonant and mute e the vowel was long such concludes mr guest is clearly the origin of this very peculiar mode of indicating the long vowel and it seems to me so obvious that i always felt surprised at the many and various opinions that have been hazarded upon the subject we could not expect much information from men who like Turwitt, were avowedly ignorant of the early state of our language but even hicks had his doubts whether the final e of the anglo-saxon words were mute or vocal and rask notwithstanding his triumph over that far superior scholar has fallen into this his greatest blunder price whose good sense does not often fail him supposes this mode of spelling to be the work of the norman and the same as the orthography that marked the long syllable of his native tongue as if the e final were mute in norman french throughout his work mr guest assumes the syllabic quality of the final e in chaucer's verse exactly as is done by turwitt after the death of chaucer he asserts volume one page eighty the final e so commonly used by that poet and his contemporaries fell into disuse hence many disyllables became words of one syllable mona became moon and sunna sun 
and the compounds into which they entered were curtailed of a syllable if it be meant that the change spoken of took place immediately or very soon after the death of chaucer the assertion is one which it would probably be somewhat difficult to make good we should doubt if the new pronunciation was generally introduced before the commencement of the sixteenth century a fact elsewhere noticed by mr guest we may just remark although not adduced by him for that purpose meets mr price's objection about the unlikelihood or impossibility of many anglo-saxon monosyllables having after the conquest been elongated into disyllables and having then in some succeeding century reverted to their original monosyllabic condition if it were necessary to make such an assumption as this in order to vindicate terwitt's theory of chaucer's versification the thing supposed is no more than what has actually happened as mr guest has observed volume one page forty the diasyllables containing y and w seem to have been once so numerous in our language that many words both english and foreign were adapted to their pronunciation and thus gained a syllable skur anglo-saxon became shower and fleur french became flower change of pronunciation has again reduced them to their original dimensions end of section twenty six